Coming to you from the last video store in the universe, it's Binge Movies 163. I'm Jason. This is the show that ranks and eliminates movies, determine which ones are most worthy of preservation for all time, even beyond the end times. On this episode, the first five films of the Criterion Collection. I'm joined this week for the season premiere of Binge Movies by film Twitter uh, Glitterati? <laughs> film Twitter celebrity? Film Twitter, um, uh, I don't know what category to put you in other than like three years ago, I got bombarded by a bunch of people saying, you need to have this person on your show. And so then we followed each other and then uh, it's taken three years for me to get you on. But it's finally happening. And it's happening because once a week, you have a haul from the Criterion Collection uh, <laughs> on your social media. I have the pleasure of speaking with uh, Kate Bush expert, Kate Bush memeifier. Yes. <laughs> uh, film Twitter, like I said, glitterati, mm -hmm. Barnes and Noble supporter, potential stakeholder, shareholder. <laughs> Um, you've seen her tweets, you know her, uh, I'm talking about Molly Raspberry. How are you, Molly? I'm good. How about yourself? I'm okay. Um, I have no idea. I've had exchanges with you in the past. I have no idea how old you are. You could be 60 <laughs> years old. You could be 22 years old. Not that I need to know your age, but your references span mm -hmm. the amount of time. You're more adept at social media than I am. Uh, so I know you're probably in your 20s-ish. Close. I'm actually in my early 30s, but I've been acting like that since since I was a teenager. Yeah, all of your references are old-timey. I, I was, um, even in high school, I became a fan of Thomas Pinchon, which actually is a character. There's a character in Richard Linklater's Days and Confused. And if you read the Criterion booklet, speaking of Criterion, you'll see that he He's read Gravity's Rainbow and is very upset that he has no high school teachers to talk to about it because no one else has read it. <laughs> read it. And I was like, that was me. <laughs> that high schooler, Richard Linklater, how did you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're the perfect guest for this because you're already talking about reading Criterion booklets. I So I'm going to ask you a series of questions, uh, but let's start with, before we dive into these movies, Let's start with what Criterion is for those who are listening. If you're listening to this show and you don't know what Criterion is, I find it doubtful, but there might be mm -hmm. some people. The Criterion Collection is essentially like a North American home video distribution company that uh, started a number of years ago um, for the purpose of preserving and distributing uh, significant works of art uh, and popular films So because they have a unique mm -hmm. mix of movies this is just old-timey black and white shit, <laughs> although that's what we're going to be talking about today um uh you know for the for the purpose of sort of preserving and celebrating the great works of of film and significant works of film uh so which is really interesting mm -hmm. you know so you're, you're gonna get anything from a cronenberg to a fellini to a truffaut to repo men so yes. uh you know you'll get all kind of stuff that's in the criterion collection mm -hmm. and uh a little bit of crossover here one of the founders of the criterion collection of the two men who founded it is producer film producer 
Joe Magic, who is most famous for producing Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. So you have Ghostbusters to thank for the Criterion Collection. You're welcome, <laughs> world. You're welcome, yes. cinema. Um, let me ask mm-hmm. you a question. If Zack Snyder went into the Criterion Closet, what movie do you think he'd pick? What couple of movies? Uh, let's see. Let's see. I think he would like Repo Man. I think he would also he would like Repo Man, but I also think he would also he'd like the classics. He loves Sam and Seven Samurai. I think because especially Three Hundred, you could see that influence right there. Or oh yeah, if they still had Ron in there, if it wasn't out of print thanks Studio Canal, then definitely that would be one of them. Yeah. And and I think also Watership Down. I think he'd also really like to because he did. The Owls of Gahuls, and that's one of his favorite films he's ever done. So I could see that with anthropomorphic animals in there. And uh, it's so hard to pick some, pick, pick some. I'm just going to go on a whim and say Bicycle Thieves as well. Maybe he likes Bicycle Thieves because he's like, yeah, yeah. Now you got to pick one movie. Kate Bush goes in the Criterion closet. What movie should she pick? What movie would she pick? Oh, sh- just one. I'm just wondering if she already has it because she'd already have the red shoes because that's one of her favorite movies and everything David Lean she loves and she loves Nicholas Rogue. She loves Don't Look Now. It's also one of her favorite movies too. So uh, it's so hard to pick probably 4K red shoes because she made an entire movie inspired by that. She was friends with Michael Powell before he passed away. So if you could do your, do your just like, Six, like the Kevin Bacon, just like six names away from Kevin Bacon, but the six names away from Kate Bush, just like, oh no, Kate Bush, she has very close ties with Martin Scorsese because she was friends with Michael Powell. And she was also friends with Robert De Niro when she met him during Brazil because she's close with Terry Gilliam. And apparently they went to a Van Morrison concert in the 90s, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> so here's, uh, th- when I look at your Twitter account, the, the thing that I always ask myself is, <laughs> how does one brain contain all of this? I could go into a long, long-winded discussion, or I could just say ADHD. I have a very hyperactive brain. <laughs> a very <laughs> hyperactive brain. <laughs> That's where my hyperactive. <laughs> now you are you you're you work at a library. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I use bookstore part time, but mostly the library. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, I now it's been twenty years, maybe not quite twenty. Oh, that's scary to think. <laughs> oh, but no. I worked at a library all throughout university. It's how like mm-hmm. I helped pay my way through college was working at the university oh, library. Yeah. <laughs> of of all of the both student and faculty librarians I worked with, you'd fit right in. So it makes perfect sense <laughs> because the encyclopedic knowledge of the of a wide variety of to- topics. Mm-hmm. You you're like a human Dewey Decibel system. <laughs> I feel like I almost, I feel like, yeah, I think, I think so. That's why people are just like, are you a reference librarian? I'm like, I'm sort of am. I would go and I even work at the bookstore and they'd be like, I'm looking for this book. It's just like, it's called, it calls, it's blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, it's Colleen Hoover. Or it's like, oh, you're looking, oh, you're looking for Paradise of the Blind because that's been a, been a high school thing. It's like, how did you know? I'm like, you're in high school, right? And you mentioned Vietnam book. It's either going to be that or because <laughs> that's what I, cause I, studied, I studied to be like, okay, what's on the reading list right now? And I studied the New York Times bestsellers and I'm just like, so I'm always one step ahead. So I always know just like, oh, okay, I know what you're look at for. you. 
you were probably born after card catalogs, but you are you are the modern equivalent of a card catalog. That's a compliment. Yeah, thank you, thank you. So I can't think of a more perfect person to talk about. I mean, my gosh, mm-hmm. Renoir, yes. uh, uh, Truffaut, mm-hmm. Kurosawa, yes. Fellini. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we're talking about 1937's The Grand Illusion, mm-hmm. which was the first film ever selected for the Criterion Collection. The second film ever selected was Kura Kurosawa's 1954 classic Seven Samurai. Mm-hmm. The third film ever chosen was Alfred Hitchcock's 1938, The Lady Vanishes. Mm-hmm. The fourth film ever chosen was uh, Fellini's 1974, I'm Record. And uh, then we have 1959, which is the fifth film chosen, mm-hmm. uh, Truffaut's uh, 400 Blows. So we've got French New Wave. We've got the th- almost 30th film Alfred Hitchcock ever worked on, but it's the one that got him seen yes. by Hollywood and brought him over to the mm-hmm. States. We've got Fellini doing, we got multiple, so many of these movies are autobiographical Mm -hmm. because auteurs love to make movies about themselves and their troubled boyhoods. Um, We've got murder mysteries. We've got train plots. Mm -hmm. We've got men on a mission films. Mm -hmm. We've got epic war sagas, epic uh, uh, Italian adolescent (laughs) boyhood fantasies. We had so many things to get into without much further ado. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at my watch. I think it is about that mm-hmm. time. Let's start with 1937's Grand Illusion, which currently has a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. We have a minute left. If, if we were loading on the arc now and you could grab four or five films, not your own, but other people's, to save on the arc for posterity, what would you grab? Too tough? Quick, another answer. Another question? Yeah. Oh, uh, another. You two films. Thrown me. Two that films. Is, yeah. Two films. Um, <laughs> two films. Grand Illusion of Renoir. Yeah. And um, uh, something else. <laughs> <laughs> Who directed the Grand Illusion? Jean Renoir. So every time a French name comes up in this episode, I'm going to mm-hmm. go silent and let you fill in the blanks. <laughs> the film was. Grand Illusion was written by who, Molly? Jean Renoir and Charles Spock. Yes, that's French they're speaking. And no, these children aren't French. They're American. And they've acquired their amazing new language skills from Muzzy. It was released June 8th, 1937 in France. Uh, We don't know the budget, but it made on U.S. re-release about Mm -hmm. half a million dollars. So uh, misfit French POWs try to escape various German war camps during the First World War. Class relationships are explored among French prisoners in a German POW camp during World War One as they all plot to escape. Yeah, so you, you nailed it right there, right? Like this, this film does not <laughs> bother at all to hide its feelings mm-hmm. about class, war, station in life, culture. Nope. Uh, it's a deeply mm-hmm. humanist film. Um, every side, including the fascist, uh, including the Germans, mm-hmm. are shown with some degree of dignity, uh, some degree of humanity. We're seeing sort of the individual human spirit versus like the collective absurdity of war mm-hmm. and class. Um, this is a much like saying all of that makes it sound very like textbook and because it's mm-hmm. old <laughs> and all this sort of stuff. It's a very funny movie. It really is. It is. It's. It's. It's labeled as a drama, mm-hmm. and it is a drama, but I would say it is mm-hmm. a modern equivalent. Like, you can definitely see things like, you can see things like a little bit like The Great Escape is in here. The, yes. Or, mm-hmm. or rather, this is in The Great Escape. I think there's a lot of Shawshank redemption. I think there's a lot of this that's in Shawshank, where we get to know all of these eclectic personalities. 
mm-hmm. through this long stretch of time and through during this big mm-hmm. event. And rather than it being a personal event, it's a, a, a European historical event. It's really about the rise mm-hmm. of fascism in World War II, but it's set mm-hmm. in World War One. Um, but none of that is subtext. No. All of that is just text. Text, yeah. There's, and it's witty. It's mm-hmm. funny. Uh, and yeah, I, I, it's. I think if you were to a modern watcher who's never seen this, were to turn it on, I think they'd be surprised at mm-hmm. just how fucking funny this movie is it really is and i was kind of surprised because the first time i tried watching it i was a teenager and at first i bemoaned the fact yeah. that there's no criterion channel at the time and i was collecting criterion since i was 16 so i'm more than happy to believe that my first my first one was probably Rashomon. Second one was La Belle et oh. Bet because, because it was Guillermo del Toro that got me into it because he brought up that film for Pan's Labyrinth's audio commentary. And I was like, I need to watch this movie because I already loved the Disney version in 1991, Beauty and the Beast. And I was like, I got to watch this. So I rented it and I watched it because I, I was lucky enough to have at the time a video store that was an independent independent store so i actually had there was a criterion selection there i was one of the lucky who yeah. had that and so i watched it and i was like holy shit this is amazing and it's probably the film i've watched it's probably the one i've watched the most and i was like if that was in the top five it's number six it's one off on the spine it is that would be number one for me for my ranking but but when I finally found found a copy I could borrow, and I watched it. I'm a teenager. I'm like 18, 19 years old, and I'm watching it. And I actually fell asleep the first time I watched it. And I'm just, no, I committed the cardinal sin of falling asleep during a great movie. <laughs> I'm going to admit that. People should be willing to admit that, especially. Oh, yeah, 100%. Please admit it. I fell asleep during Racerhead. The time. I was so exhausted after a long day of work. It, and my brother comes in yeah. when he's getting over the baby. He's like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> the <baby. laughs> that's the best. That's the only appropriate reaction to a Racerhead is, what the fuck is this? I yeah. know, just coming in to get me for dinner, just like, what? <laughs> But yeah, so so and then I rewatched it, rewatched it, and I end up loving it. I don't love it as much as Rules of the Game, which yeah. I think is Jean Renoir's best film because I think it is more cynical towards the aristocracy. But there is this level of humanism that I love with this film, like you mentioned. When they're discussing um, Eric von Stroheim's character with the French aristocrat bringing up just like, just like our roles will be meaningless after this. And I said, yeah. And they don't really feel so sad about it. Not as much as you would think, no, which is very, no. I was just refreshing well, with that, especially since John Renoir, he grew up in a very privileged background. He's the son of Pierre Renoir, the painter. So he already was a rich kid growing up and he was seeing all this and being like, Oh, would this be really upsetting if I lost all these privileges just because of how I was born? Maybe not. So it it is kind of autobiographical in a sense. I mean, Jean Gabin even wears his World War One uniform. Jean Renoir's World War One uniform he wore when he was in the war. So yeah. Wow. Yes. I didn't realize mm-hmm. that. Wow. So yeah, you're watching that just like you could see see these characters and how they get um connect to each other. And I see a lot of influence with it with Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, which I saw a couple months ago with David Bowie. I brought it up and and 
Ryuchi Sakamoto, and I brought that up on my Twitter account and bringing up that they're humanized on both sides with the British POWs yeah. and the Japanese imperialist army. Army, even though there's a there's a gay love, there's a um, homosexual tension, which is probably what the movie's most famous for. But yes, there's a lot of that yeah. in that movie. But I could see the influence of of the grand illusion in a film like that showing the humanism on both sides i mean even the sound of music was influenced by it because there's the scene right near the end in this movie they took basically from the grand illusion and with la marseille where they're singing the la marseille scene casablanca took that as well oh yes 100 percent, 100 percent. casablanca yes. took it 100 percent. yeah um yeah i think so it's it, like when I say this movie wears its heart on its sleeve, it really does because rather than it being subtext, I mean, you have a conversation between two aristocrats, mm-hmm. a French aristocrat and a German aristocrat who are now officers for their respective countries. And they're sitting there and they're sort of like lamenting kind of, at least the yeah. German one is. And it's like, like, Oh, the mm-hmm. world's changing. And now we've got like sort of like nouveau riche Jewish immigrants are now buying mm-hmm. all this property and the, you know, the Rosenthal character and all this sort of stuff. It's like, isn't that kind of sad? And then the response is, well, er- aristocracy yeah. is superfluous. <laughs> and that's, that is the line. I'm like, well, there, <laughs> there's no, let's read between the lines. And what do you think this movie thinks about? Arist- it's like aristocracy is superfluous and war is arbitrary. And mm-hmm. but the movie is a little slightly more subtle about his war because it's like any war fought, with these kind of formalities could just as easily not be fought at all. Yeah, exactly. It's- right. It's like, well, you know, we, we, we've brought you to this camp and we're going to hand you this guidebook and this is how we're going to treat you at this camp. And you're going to be under these rules and, you know, and, and then you like, you watch it and it's sort of like, mm-hmm. it's so arbitrary. It's so, it's so very obvious that these borders and these policies and these formalities and this, Mm-hmm. Sort of the the rules of engagement are so yes. so ludicrous mm-hmm. and so made up that if you if you just put that amount of energy into just not fucking fighting exactly. a war, the war would be over. And there's that that mm-hmm. runs through the entire movie. Yes, that's the more subtle aspect of the film. The more mm-hmm. overt mm-hmm. aspect is obviously class yeah. because there's a difference between the two French officers, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. their station, and then the people they share with, and so forth and so on, and. And then, of course, the movie ends on a very, like, yes. it's literal but also metaphorical where yes. the aristocrat has to die in order for mm-hmm. the low person of lower station to reach freedom. Yes. And where, do, of course, do they go? They go mm-hmm. to Switzerland. They go to a place of neutrality. And so, yeah. So, like, it brings those themes together mm-hmm. of, like, for, for the working person to thrive, the aristocracy must die. And for war to end, people must be neutral. And it's like, so... I don't want to say the movie is obvious and make that a bad thing. Mm-hmm. It's obvious and it's a great thing in the case of this film. Yes, it very much is. And I guess this, this message was much more, people were willing, more willing to listen to it than they were for rules of the game, which is much more cynical, which I found very fascinating with that. But it's interesting how kind of anti-monarchist that John Winbar is at points. Cause you would think you would almost think he grew up in this privilege, this idea, and he would want to that idea of being born into this sort of station in life. And I don't think he, I don't think he really ever felt that. And I think World War One fundamentally changed him in that sense. I mean, it was the first war to use to use gas 
and that immediately, yeah, mustard gas, and immediately after that war ended, they made it a war crime to use those gases because of how devastating the effects were. That's how bad they were. And so it's fascinating to to look at that and look at those they and look at where he's coming from an idea because that just um fund him because i'm sure also he was of course when you bring up you're seeing that all the aristocracy for the most part are also with everyone of different classes in in those in the warfare and it's also i'm it's one of the few anti-war films where you don't even really see violence you don't really see it's mostly men talking to each other or talking to a woman in the third part of the film that becomes kind of a romance right there. So it's, it's one of those few anti-war films where you're just like, yeah, there's not really any violence. It's an anti-war movie. That's mostly actually like a prison escape film. Uh, Another thing that I think is, is lifted a little bit is the scene where Rosenthal is like a well-connected, he's a Jewish soldier uh, fighting, his family were immigrants to France and they've become very affluent and they're, uh, they're allowed to receive prison mail in this POW camp. And so he's getting all of these very sort of high-end foods and cheeses and canned, you know, anchovies and whatnot. And so, you know, and so they're, um, and he gets it in abundance. And so he shares with everybody he, he gets it in and he shares with everybody people of low station and the aristocrats and so it's really funny because there's this juxtaposition between the the one camp they're in where the german guards are in like they're basically in a gulag and they're eating sh- like the guy says like we're eating shoe shoe soup again <laughs> yeah. we're just eating like this broth there's no no substance to it. it's just like warm water nope. they look cold yep. they look fucking miserable cut to the prisoners and there's candles mm-hmm. and they're at a table yes. and it's very nice and clean. And there's formality and they're mm-hmm. drinking wine and they're eating yes. cheeses and they're having a philosophical discussion. And, and, and you're watching mm-hmm. them sort of slice the cheese. And I'm like, that's good fellas. That is the scene of Polly slicing the garlic and they're, they're cooking. Yes. And it's like, yeah. And I'm like, Oh shit. Yes, of course. And then, um, mm-hmm. the, of all the movies this week, this one actually made me cry. Yeah. Oh. And the the where it moved me to tears. Mm-hmm. And I have no <laughs> no idea why <laughs> is when Marichal is in solitary confinement for mm-hmm. leading them in singing uh, mm-hmm. La Marseille, and uh, yes. he's the one that gets thrown into solitary confinement for mm-hmm. an inhumane amount of time, and he's cracking up. Mm-hmm. He's losing his yes. shit. And he's mm-hmm. like, I haven't heard French and I haven't seen their person. And I'm like, he's going nuts. Mm-hmm. And the German guard goes in and the German guard tries to comfort him. He like puts yes. his arm around oh. him and he's not having it because he's like fucking crazy. Mm-hmm. And so yes. then the German guard like mm-hmm. is like rifling through his pockets and he, he starts pulling out cig- cigarettes, like, oh, like, mm-hmm. you want a cig- like here, have my cigarettes to so try to like calm him down. And he was mm-hmm. not having it. And then he pulls out his harmonica. And the subtlety, because the German guy doesn't say anything. Mm-hmm. No. And he's like, this guy's going, you know, the French soldier, Marcel, is going in hysterics. Mm-hmm. And so he just leaves the harmonica on the bed mm-hmm. and he gently walks out of the room. And the you start hearing the harmonica play. Mm-hmm. 
And the other German guys are like, what the hell is all this racket and da 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 da. And he just looks at him and just like shrugs. He's like, I don't know. And just like, <laughs> it was like, it, yes. I don't know. That whole exchange was so tender and so yes. like the compassion and mm-hmm. the, um, it just gets to the absurdity it's, of war, which is I like, know. people are, we all share common humanity. Mm-hmm. What the fuck are we fighting for? Why are I we killing know. each other? Especially World War One. that war was superfluous. It probably was yes. that and maybe the Vietnam War are the least, are the wars that we had no business being a part of. Anyone had business had business being a part of in the 20th century. Yeah. I'm not counting the, the hundred years war, which I don't think was worth it. Neither was the seven years war, but I'm talking about <laughs> 21st century. Let's not get there. Yeah, 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 yeah. There was a lot of trying to land grab from either the church or Christianity or, or aristocracy wanting to get more yeah, land, right. which is why I consider a lot of those wars very superfluous, but I'm talking about wars with 20th to 21st century wars. Yeah, but, kind of modern nation state wars. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And I really love that you brought up the um, the Jewish man actually sharing it because this was during a time when, because the film in intertext, they bring up where these locations are and you realize that, oh, these are locations they were in in 1916, if you do a bit more research. So when they're saying that uh, the war should be over soon, really quickly in a couple of months, it takes about two years because it's 1918 yep. war officially ends. So that's the dramatic irony going in there. And yeah. And during this time, the Dreyfus affair was also happening in the early 19th century. So I'm sure that that was kind of a process being in. I'm sure John Winraw remembered that with that and seeing that Jewish man actually portraying that. And that was very sweet because I think there was still a lot of anti-Semitic, especially with the oncoming rise of fascism in Germany. Oh, there 100%. Was, there right. was the anti-Semitic Semitic, um, um feelings going around in European nations. So, yeah. So that was, yeah. And this, this is, this is an anti-Nazi. It really is. It really is. That is made during the rise of Nazism Mm -hmm. and the expansion of Nazism throughout Europe and Mm anti-Semitism and German expansion. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're heading towards the second world war. Uh, and it's obviously going to get much worse, Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, the, 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 the die has already been cast Mm -hmm. and he's, and so it's like, He's using the First World War to really comment on the Second World War. Mm-hmm. In the same way, you know, it's very Shakespearean in that way. It's yes. like his oldest time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, yeah, I, this is a fantastic mm-hmm. film. Uh, it It is way funnier <laughs> than you would think. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in fact, my overall impression, because it's really interesting, you know, you watch these movies in isolation, mm-hmm. and you watch them together and you think, okay, why were these, other than obviously, like, what could they get the license for and all this yes. sort of stuff. But, but why are these the first five films in the criterion collection? And then when you, when you look at almost all of them to a mm-hmm. T, they're way more comedic than you would think. If you mm-hmm. were just to think, if you were just to say without looking at the titles, yes. what do you think the first five films in the criterion collection were? You wouldn't think that they would, and even if you gave some of the names, even like Hitchcock, which mm-hmm. we're going to get to here in a second, you wouldn't think, well, you know, it's Hitchcock's funny. It? <laughs> it's, it, it's you know mm-hmm. uh they're all funny mm-hmm. movies and it's, to some extent and you're like you wouldn't think that of like that they're all either comedy or slash comedy mm-hmm. so um this movie is great i think everybody should watch mm-hmm. it it's a 9.25 out of 10 for me it's but it's my, only my number three for yes. this week it's actually not my number one either so 
So once we get to that, that I would rate it probably about a nine out of 10, 10, honestly. So, yeah. but that's just me, which is still yeah. masterpiece level. So I'm sure there's sure. going to be people like, oh my nine. Are you just like, <laughs> <laughs> where, where does that fall for you then? Is that like your number two, <laughs> number three, number four, that, number five? That is actually my number four on my list. Wow. Okay. All right. Wow. I only really connected with it later in life, in my short life still. I'm still pretty young. So, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, I didn't connect to it as a teenager like I did these other films when I was a teen. So I think that's why in ones I was like, I kept, and I've only seen it twice. I've seen the other ones more than twice. So that's also why I'm just biased. Once you're elderly like me, <laughs> then you'll start crying. I probably will enjoy like, it more. Oh, I had that with Jean Dielman at first time. The first I watched it when I was a teen, I was like, I am so bored. I don't like this. And then when I'm 20s, I'm like, oh my God, this movie's great. And then I watch it in my 30s. <laughs> and when I'm 30, and I'm like, this is a masterpiece and one of the best movies ever yeah. made. And it's one of my comfort films now, which people are like, how can you watch three hours of that? I'm just doing chores. I'm like, it's it's mesmerizing and it and it's quite the minute she she accidentally the minute she makes a mistake you're like oh my god oh my god it's like a plot twist because <laughs> you here's what i recommend all the binge lords listening at home get your official binge movies notebook that's available at uh, bingemovies.threadless.com open it up and every time molly name drops <laughs> another classic <laughs> part of cinema write that name down yeah. and go watch it Speaking of another three-hour mm-hmm. movie, the longest, most epic film mm-hmm. on our list and probably the most influential film, mm-hmm. arguably, of all time, certainly the most influential filmmaker of all time, 1954's Akira Kurosawa classic, Seven Samurai, which currently has a 100%. Ooh, as long as Armin White does not mess that up. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't really experience foreign films until I found my way into film school. And um, at that point is when I was actually exposed to Kurosawa. And um, a friend of mine, John Milius, actually was a huge fan of Kurosawa's. And um, so whenever the film was showing, you'd say, oh, you got to come and see this. you got to come and see this. And after the first one, I mean, the first one I saw was Seven Samurai. And after that, I was completely hooked. I said, you know, this is really, this is really good. It's hard to really appreciate... uh, a true genius of Kurosawa, I think, until you've seen a few of the films and then you've been able to see other films at the same time and be able to realize his visual style. My, my favorite of all time is really Seven Samurai. Seven Samurai was directed by the late, great Akira Kurosawa. It was written by Akira Kurosawa, Shinobu Hashimoto, Hideo Oguni. Um, this film was released uh, April 26, 1954, on a budget of 210 million yen, which was roughly at that time $580,000. It made 268.2 million yen, which is roughly $2.3 million US. That's primarily from the rentals. Uh, and it made uh, 833,000 in the US. So uh, a, a smash success. Um, a peasant village hires a weary samurai to defend them against vicious bandits. My sentence is basically the same, but just seven samurai are hired, even though that's technically not accurate with the seven samurai part. We're going into spoiler territory here. Seven samurai are hired by a poor village to defend their crops from roving bandits in the warring states period in Japan. 
This movie, though, the hard to to synopsize this film is very difficult because mm-hmm. when you give it a one sentence plot synopsis, it sounds like fifty million other movies. The exactly. problem with that, though, especially for this film, is those fifty million other movies are aping directly from Seven Samurai. This yes, is. They are. With, Within film history, this is considered the first mm-hmm. men on a mission movie. It's the first ragtag group movie. It's the first suicide mm-hmm. mission movie. It's like mm-hmm. if you've ever seen a movie from either Saving Private Ryan to Aliens to to A Bug's Life. A Bug's Life to <laughs> pretty much anything else mm-hmm. that you've ever enjoyed, it is Seven Samurai. And if it's not mm-hmm. Seven Samurai, it's Yojimbo. And if it's yes. not Yojimbo, it's Hidden Fortress. There's three mm-hmm. movies that were made by Akira Kurosawa and all of Western cinema and all actually from Spaghetti Westerns, which is basically Yojimbo, which then made the revisionist Westerns mm-hmm. of the U.S. and all the way through. Like everything that you love about movies comes from Akira Kurosawa. <laughs> it certainly does. In fact, if you see so much from Spielberg and George Lucas, you're like, oh, that's where they get it from. If they wa- if you watch a ton of Kurosawa's films, like you can see that was Ron, Ron and Saving Private Ryan, the the, yeah. the um, storming of the storming of the ba- of beach of Normandy. That is, it's taken directly from Ron, including the guy holding his arm up, holding his yes. decapitated arm up. That comes directly from Ron. Yeah. Ron, and of course, Hidden Fortress takes so much. Star Wars takes so much from Hidden Fortress. Oh, and, yeah, so much. Yes, and Seven Samurai. In fact, even 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 the slightest touches like like Yoda just putting rubbing his head in Attack of the Clones that is taken from Takashi Shimura touching his bald head when he cut it cut it to save that child which was in that film film an act of dishonor as well because because samurais their top knots they worship their top knots it was a sign of their nobility and their privilege in that society and he's basically shunning shunning his heiress aristocratic aristocratic signifier to protect a helpless child which is why he's he's the samurai they go to the first the first one that actually they know that he may actually help us well yeah so that's like okay let's get let's get beyond um all of the basically if you've ever seen a western or a war movie mm-hmm. or an action movie after 1954 it's seven yeah. Um, and that's why, like, that's when those movies actually start to get good because otherwise mm-hmm. you got a bunch of John Wayne bullshit. But um, <laughs> uh, this is also a movie about class because yeah. it's, it's what's what might be missing upon us as Western audience members mm-hmm. is the idea of these sam- samurai uh, sort of pledging themselves to help poor villagers mm-hmm. um, is all about it's, it, it's an unusual arrangement mm-hmm. for lack of a better word. Yes. It's a transgressive arrangement. Mm-hmm. And the, and the fact that some of these samurai are, I mean, we got one in mm-hmm. particular, which is, this is the triumphant debut of to, to Mifune mm-hmm. for binge movies. So put that in your binge movies, notebook. Yes. um, him playing, um, Oh my God. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, you know, he's he's sort of this mm-hmm. s- sort of uh, pretender yeah. samurai, mm-hmm. in essence. And then um, and all these other ones are they're 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 kind of mostly Ronins. You know, they're sort yes. of disgraced samurai. Yeah, they don't really have a, they don't have a master, and they're trying to yeah. find find a, a lord, a a, um, a um, daimyo to to be hired for. Mm-hmm. 
And instead, they cross this line, this cultural line, for the sake of the principle, their principles, for the sake of nobility, not nobility of like station, but nobility of virtue, of ethic, and decide to help these people. And if you've ever seen a movie where you have this sort of dignified, world-weary, but yet dignified, morally upright leader um, who has to make very tough decisions, it's somebody is doing Shimura from this film. I mean, I mean, I, like you watch this movie, the movie is, you know, three plus hours long and or right around there. It's very long. Um, but my, and my opinion, the second hour is the strongest hour of the movie. Um, I love that second hour, which is like really comes alive, but his, his ability, a Kurosawa's ability in this film that each, it's not just like, this, this one's so hard to talk about Molly. It's not just that each samurai has a distinct personality, mm-hmm. but a lot of the villagers do too. Yes. And it's like, these are very, very well-drawn characters and they're all distinct from each other. And they're all, you end up feeling for having some kind of emotion, whether it's disgust or pity or empathy or sympathy or um, uh, uh, a sense of, of admiration for the heroism of some of these characters. Um, you feel like it's a long ass movie, but the entire time you feel for these characters, that's so important because if you don't know anything about Seven Samurai, and if you've ever seen a movie past 1954, you do know about Seven Samurai. Uh, it doesn't end well for a lot of these characters. No, it does not. No, it does not. It's so heart-wrenching it is. to watch the death of these characters. Uh, and I, I w- maybe my favorite scene in the movie is when Mifune comes back with all of this samurai armor. And he's doing it to, he's so desperate for like the fatherly approval of these true once great noble samurai, because he is this self-made self-aggrandizing kind of, he's a poser. Yes. For lack of a better term. Yeah. Which he is, which they bring up in a really funny, funny scene where they have the scroll and he can't read. So he can read names, but he can't really read days of birth. So they have the scroll where it's, he says, that's my family tree right there. Just like, Oh, you look great for a 14 year old boy because <laughs> he couldn't read. Right, that right, right. <laughs> so, so that's yeah. how he got his name because we don't really know his real name. He just took it from that scroll right there. And he's like, we're just going to keep yeah. calling you Kyo. So, so, yeah. yeah so, and when he's, you know, he screams a lot in this movie. He really does, but, but he has good reason to. <laughs> and when he's going off, you know, because okay. he's like, they're like disgusted by it because what that means is, essentially these villagers and him, they killed these other samurai who were fleeing battle and stole their armor off their dead bodies. So it's like dishonor, disgrace, basically sacrilege. Exactly. But it also brings up, he brings up just like, you want to know why they hire you want to know why? Because you're no better than the bandits because, because they bring that up with, the daughter having her hair cut to pretend to be a boy so she won't be raped because samurai they feel feel 
the, the people are property. They're objects for them to be used for, which is why they hide a bunch of that because they know that the samurai will starve them. And they know that, and that's how desperate they are. are. And it's also, this is kind of autobiographical as well, if you think about it, because Kurosawa did come from a samurai lineage. So this was his apology almost for everything his family did because he knows with all the awesome there was record keeping of his family line and he knew that many of his ancestors they were rapists they did kill indiscriminately peasantry because they just saw them as nobodies they saw them as people not worth caring about because they only were meant to serve the samurai or the daimyo daimyo they weren't meant to have their own lives and their own own looks and that's uh, their own their own world world beyond this class structure and kurosawa also humanizes the bandits especially with the one played by yoshio Tsuchuya, who you people may remember from godzilla films as well he was in a lot of godzilla films and he's also in a lot of kurosawa films and funeral parade of roses he's the dad in funeral parade of roses spoiler alert right there which is how kurosawa actually cast um cast peter in ron the um the drag queen drag queen actor actor so fun fact so that's how how they got connected but yeah as rikichi who's um whose wife was stolen by the bandits so. yes mm-hmm. yeah it's this is another it's, it's a little revisionist history sort of it's like a fantasy because it's like you know, we have the situation where the young maiden is sort of like to the matinee idol samurai is like, why don't you like do what you're do your duty, do what a samurai does. And he like refuses in the field. And he's just like, like, yeah. And, and then it ends up sort of becoming a, a, like a legitimate romance. And then when they figure out that there's this um, widow woman who's in the village, who's starving to death, they give up their rice and then they end up feeding the kids and so it's like it's almost like a revisionist history of like what if samurais weren't pieces of shit <laughs> it really is this is why i think a lot of japanese audiences were like this feels more like a western than it really does a film like that because we didn't really see because samurais were always portrayed for the most part before this film is very heroic there was it was all black and white there was no shades of gray gray in there and kurosawa broke that mold and especially it almost seems like he was breaking it because he did a lot of world war ii propaganda films where he did like um um the sangato sangato character who was who was kind of this propaganda figure for the imperialist army army that became a meme with the um the um with um the dreamcast i think it was was if he became a character trying to sell a video game state video game thing so fun fact but yes, of course, now a character ended up peddling Sega Dreamcast. <laughs> yes. Sengato. So, so yes, so that's so, so that was a part of that. And I think it was almost kind of Kurosawa's apology for making those kinds of films in World War II because having to, and you could see that also with that with um, Stray Dogs, the pre- um, previous film with that that post World War II, and realizing that it was not worth it, being trying to recreate this idea of of Japanese um, Japanese um, Sengeku period or Japanese Warring States eras with daimyo's because they were worshiping 
worshipping um, Tojo and um, those generals as daimyos, basically, not emperors at that time. And they were trying to recreate that idealized version of the samurai with it, which is why they also, in World War II, they did have, they did commit seppuku a bunch of times. And the kamikaze was all about that, which is like, the honorable death right there. Yeah. So th- this movie is subverting all of that because the honorable death is not to die for the state. The honorable death is to die for the poor and the marginalized. The honorable death is to sa- self-sacrifice for the benefit of others, for the salvation of others. But the thing is like um, going back to Mifune's rant, the main one in the, with the samurai armor is what we get to is we get to the basis of his rage, which is uh, he's he was orphaned very very young, and there's obviously the scene with, with the him baby. Like, this is exactly the, what happened the baby, to me. The baby <laughs> the fire after the mom's sacrifice to save that child. I cry yes. during that scene. That's my scene where I cry, cry yeah. and realizing that this child will not yeah. have any family. And yes, and that's what exactly. Mm-hmm. It's for the cycles repeating itself. But the reason Mm -hmm. why he hates these farmers so much is because essentially none of them Mm -hmm. adopted him. None of them took him in Mm -hmm. after he was orphaned. Nobody gave a shit about him. And so he's like, these Mm -hmm. are, these are greedy Mm -hmm. people. They're misers. They hide things. They, 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 you know, they pretend to be poor. They pretend they don't have anything, but it's really so they can Mm -hmm. exploit others and they're playing you basically. And he also hates the samurai because yes, because they led them to that. And and then, and he's like, you know, you, you, you blame them for being murderers. Well, who trained them to be murderers? You did. Mm -hmm. You made them into murder. So you realize this is a man without a country. This is a man Mm -hmm. who is angry at everybody because, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, as a child, nobody rescued him. Right. No. And so, you know, he has, there are no real main characters. Everybody is kind of a main character Basically, or at least yes. three or four, mm-hmm. but he gets a big character arc. He gets that very, mm-hmm. he goes from being that angry, broken young man into mm-hmm. being somebody who makes decisions mm-hmm. that give him the nobility and credibility. And what's so perfect about that scene, just like grand illusion is at a certain point, they stop the, the samurai stop arguing with him and they're just listening. And then you look at Shimura's face and his eyes are flooded with tears. And then there's just a long fucking pause because eventually Mifune just breaks down and is just sobbing on the floor like a child. Yes, he is. This big, hulking, strong, angry young man is just like, like, sobbing like a child I know. and what you it's such a subtle moment but Mifune's hands go he's like in the you know the uh the uh sitting cross-legged and you watch his hands and his hands go slowly they go slack right he goes from having almost like fist as this guy's yelling at him and then as he starts sobbing his hands just open up and they go slack and he his eyes are flooded with tears his whole posture mm-hmm. changes even though he's in the same position. And then he says, like, you, you're a, you were a uh, orphan of farmers, you know, mm-hmm. he says it with so much compassion. Yes. And, and the embarrassment, the shame, the pain washes over mm-hmm. Mifune's face and he runs out yeah. and you realize like, Oh, the basis of all of this guy's anger and bravado mm-hmm. and all this sort of stuff is pain, just trauma. Really. It really is. Mm-hmm. And from that, you know, it's like, like, the idea that 
Like mm-hmm. these samurai show him compassion and to a certain yeah. extent kind of allow him to save face a little bit. Yeah. And it's just beautiful. That's uh mm-hmm. it is beautiful. This, this movie's so hard to talk about because we could do three hours just on this. I know you really could. I mean, we haven't even discussed the homoerotic tension nope. with no, no, it's just like especially because historically a lot of samurai did engage in in sexual relationships with their apprentices with with yes. So, yeah. Which makes perfect so, yeah. sense. And, yes. Yeah, with yeah. um oh with um and I realize I've been um Kikuchio, not Kyozo, Kikuchio was Kikuchio, um, that's it, yeah, Kikuchio. Yes, yes. Kikuchio. Kyozo is the skilled one, the one that the youngest apprentice, youngest apprentice has the crush on, but he also has the crush on the girl who had her hair cut and is dressed as a man. So yeah. and the first time they meet, meet yes. he's picking flowers, which is not a masculine Very good point. trait. And he's just like, young boy should not be picking up flowers, pointing the flowers right at her. And then he just like puts it back and then they have their scene in the flower beds. So it's like Oh, and then you see him catching him looking at Kyozo many times and just like with this fondest admiration. And he screams the loudest when Kyozo is shot in the finale. And he sacrifices basically himself to throw his katana to point where the where the where the shooter is. Right there. Right there. And you're like, oh wow. <laughs> Does the is the reason why he doesn't take advantage of the young girl in the flower bed? Is it really revisionist history to give some sort of honor to samurai or is it because potentially he's more attracted to uh, men? I think it might be a mix of both, but also because he does believe this idea of honorable samurai because he's so young and he hasn't had his and he hasn't had that experience where. Oh, most samurai do not act like that. Most samurai are not. They, They put a facade of honor. So he's trying to live up to that honor. Yeah. honor that's that honor that doesn't really exist he's, and then, he's an idealist yeah yeah, yeah basically yeah. he's basically like like what um um like with harakiri with um with where he's like the samurai the main samurai before before um uh oh what's his name the guy who was in kagimusha but that guy and yojimbo of course yeah and so he's like the pre thing before his son was killed and his daughter dies and so and so he's like screw honor and but and he's like the pre version of that where he hasn't had his rose colored glasses are not are not off yet so man i could keep talking about it forever but we can't because we have to eventually end this episode (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately. I very rarely do this. This is, I don't know, fourth time maybe in the history of the show that I've done this. Mm-hmm. This movie to me is a 10 out of 10. Same. It's a 10 out of 10. It's yeah. my number one yeah, on the yeah. ratings. <laughs> yeah, same. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And here's the thing, right? Mm-hmm. There's so much discourse now, you know, uh, uh, about how long movies should be and all this sort of stuff. And I subscribe to the ebert like no good movie is too too long and no bad movie is too short exactly if you've got the dvd like i did when i was a teenager then then it would end and you're like insert disc two and you're like 
no, no pause, no pause. Keep going. Yeah. I'm sure. First of all, this movie is so energetically filmed. Mm -hmm. The cinematography is incredible. Yes. You'll recognize so much of everything you love about cinema, including all the wipes and everything that would eventually get picked up by Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And you'll just, you'll pick it all up. And, and not to go very low art since we're doing a criterion collection deal here, but I have been begging somebody for the love of God, since we are so adrift uh, creatively, mm-hmm. why in the fuck doesn't somebody make just Magnificent Seven, Seven Samurai with fucking Jedi? Why doesn't, like, set it wherever, yeah. set it in the Old Republic. I don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. Cast Ken Watanabe yes. as the head fucking Jedi. I'd be really fine with that. The Jedi are mm-hmm. stolen samurai. They're stolen. <laughs> Everything about them is Japanese. Stolen valor. We have a douchebag right here. Just fucking be like, here's some Jedi that ha- are on a suicide mission to protect a village against whoever yes. imperial forces well i don't care when mm-hmm. but against some sort of imposing threat mm-hmm. and just like it it fucking writes itself it really does the scene the scene where the I've, i don't even remember which samurai it is it might be Kambai, but where he's pr- practicing sword play in the middle of the pouring rain when everybody else is inside you know He's he's focusing on his craft. I mean, goddamn, just lift that scene, mm-hmm. make it a fucking lightsaber. Let's get back to Jedi's being worth the shit. And you could also use it just <laughs> in the same way that Akira Kurosawa was trying to uh, do a revisionist mm-hmm. history. We're at the point where we need revisionist history to where some like because Jedi Jedi fall by the dozen yes. into the dark side mm-hmm. at this point, and there's fifty million of them, and they're all evil now. <laughs> And so can we just have a revisionist Star Wars movie where we see Jedi actually be noble and actually be peacekeepers in the universe, in the galaxy? I could see that in the High Republic. They're already writing books in the High Republic where it was over a thousand years before the original series. Like, do it in that time period, please. Yes. Like, that would be fantastic. Exactly. Show us some Jedi who are actually... Seem human and actually I know, I know. Um, uh, have some integrity, for God's sakes. Uh, <laughs> leave the deconstruction to other things, but that, that's neither here nor there. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, yeah, this is my number one. It's a 10 out of 10. I went on a Star Wars rant, <laughs> Alpha for Kur- Kurosawa, but it's not that far off because Star Wars basically is a Kur- Kurosawa. So, basically, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we both love this. Uh, and here's my argument. Okay. If you think the movie's too long, the movie has natural breaks in it. So it treat does. it as if it's a fucking mini series as a very mm-hmm. as an intermission, but watch it about an mm-hmm. hour at a time. Cause there's about after about an hour, then there's like mm-hmm. a it fades to black and you could just stop it mm-hmm. and then come back to it. You won't want to, if you actually yeah. give it a chance, but if your attention span <laughs> is so broken, divide it up into mm-hmm. basically, you know, an hour, an hour and an hour and a half. and It'll be one of the best miniseries mm-hmm. you ever watch. Just read yes. a limited series yes. <laughs> and watch it, and you'll realize, oh my yes. god, it's fucking awesome! And I can't wait for the day where this is divided into three hundred parts across TikTok. Oh, so. I would. Oh yes, let's let's get into that. <laughs> Once it's in the public domain, so even though Criterion Collection will be like, if they ask, because it's owned by distribution rights are owned by Yanis Films, and I'm sure if if yes. TikTok asked for it, they like no. 
fuck you. <laughs> like was right, like, right. Like, William freed kids, freed kids out. No, fuck you. Aren't they asking that? Fuck you. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. I don't give a flying fuck into a rolling donut. And they're like, we don't even pay residuals for this movie, but no, F you. <laughs> Let's move on to another comedy. <laughs> 1938, <laughs> The Lady Vanishes, which currently has a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. When The Lady Vanishes was released, Alfred Hitchcock was the most famous and successful director in England. And he was very much on Hollywood's radar. Producer David O. Selznick admired Hitchcock's work, and he'd been toying with the idea of signing him to a contract, bringing him to America. But Hitchcock's last few films had not done particularly well at the box office, and Selznick was having second thoughts. Those second thoughts, however, quickly receded once The Lady Vanishes was released. It immediately became England's most successful movie to date. Margaret Lockwood was undeniably part of that success. Audiences were taken with her, as was Alfred Hitchcock. He told the press that the British picture industry had the possibility of developing a star of unanticipated possibilities, adding that Lockwood had, quote, an undoubted gift in expressing her beauty in terms of emotion and an extraordinary insight in getting the feel of her lines. The Lady Vanishes was directed by Alfred Hitchcock. It was written by uh, Frank Laudner and Sidney Galat is based on The Wheel Spins, which is a 1936 novel by Ethel Lena White. International espionage on a train serves as the ultimate thrill ride meet cute. My my sentence is an English tourist traveling on a train is horrified to discover that an elderly passenger she befriended has disappeared, and everyone on the train denies having ever seen this passenger. Isn't this entire movie just basically a protracted rom com meet cute? Basically, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a romance. It really it's like no. it's like what if what if you had a big long meat cute, yes. but it was the meat cute was an they two random f- people during an Agatha Christie novel like yeah, ran into each other. Basically, yes. Like, and yes. I was so surprised at a couple of different things. How funny the movie mm-hmm. is! I've never mm-hmm. seen this one before. Uh, ironically, how horny this movie is. Is that the oh, horniest? Definitely. That's the horniest, <laughs> but it's, it's not really fucking horny. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's not the horniest Albert Hitchcock's ever done, but really, really, really horny. And how raunchy it is. It really is. Just that pre-code cinema is just, uh, I love it so much. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also well, the one that has the gay couple in the bed and they just chop out one of them shirtless, just like, Oh my God, just the two guys just right there, just hopping out of bed. And they're the f- just right there providing commentary, which is great. <laughs> oh, it's, a, well, it's okay. So the first like 30 minutes of this movie, and it's probably not actually 30 minutes, but it feels like the first 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. You're like, okay, we have these two uh, British travelers mm-hmm. and they're sort of these stuffy, you know, uh, stiff upper lip sort of Brits, these yes. sort of prissy Brits. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. very much like a C3PO R2D2 keeping with the star Wars theme kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. And it's very much like um, it's definitely playing around with the idea of even if they themselves are not gay, which I think they are, but even if they aren't, yes, they are. Everybody else <laughs> thinks they are right. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> and is it, not, if you talk to him, he's like, 
he would even say, no, I cast Anthony Perkins in Psycho because he was gay. And that also brought in that demure, that disposition of very tight knit and hiding yes. something. And he was very much in Rope. Yes. It was also gay as well, which is why we had, I remember yes, there was very that. Much so. But the screenwriters, when he heard that James Stewart was cast, like, just like, this guy is supposed to have had sex with these two boys. Just like, Jimmy Stewart has no sex. <laughs> this guy and you're like Uh, wow (laughs) they're kind of gay panic jokes a little bit but not really because these these fake balkan states that that they create for the movie yeah uh and this like little in this 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 bed and breakfast in sort of i don't know hostile sort of situation that they're Mm in uh is it's like they have a very European sensibility about it. So like the maid that doesn't speak English and they speak some sort of it's almost Italian, but not, mm-hmm. it's kind of this made up language. Uh, she's just very like, Oh yeah. Okay. All right. Two men are going to share. That's fine. Yeah. Okay. Just let me get my hat. You know, um, you're convinced like having never seen this movie before. I'm like, are these have got to be our main characters. And these two guys are going to kind of fumble fuck their way through this murder mystery, this lady vanishing. Uh, and I got to be honest with you, the scene where this they're they're sitting there and they're talking to the 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 lady mm-hmm. uh, Foy, Miss Foy. Yeah, yes, right? yes, I think so. Yeah, Foy. Oh yeah, yeah. Miss Freud. She, Freud, Freud. She's when she's talking to them and she's like, oh, I think this is a magical place, and it's almost as if the mm-hmm. big mountains are singing the little mountains of the courses. Yes. I was I was literally like rolling my fucking eyes, <laughs> and I was like, I. I, I cannot believe this. Yes, I hate this. Uh, this is uh, this is so just tacky or whatever. Mm-hmm. Then cut to their reaction, and they have the exact same fucking reaction <laughs> as I do. And then I realize, oh, she is supposed to be this sort of, she's coming off as this idiotic mm-hmm. sort of character, yes. and it's intentional. It's not just bad acting uh-huh. it, or a poorly written monologue. She is supposed to be Daffy. Mm-hmm, and when they're just like, they're like, oh, my God. Yeah, can you believe this bullshit this lady said? I was like, oh my God. And then I got it. I was like, okay, I'm I'm in for this. I love yes. it. Um, and then we switch characters. We switch characters to the this bachelorette mm-hmm. who is very much of like this era, like of sort of the single women doing it for themselves who mm-hmm. may or may not be lesbians. <laughs> uh one of our one of our contributing hosts here at Binge Movies has a theory that uh, most people's grandmas were actually lesbians. I would surprised. Uh, I think that's my, her. I think my great great <laughs> aunt aunt was. My mom seems to think she was. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's a good thing I'm named yeah. after her then, because I'm pretty gay myself. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I like definitely the one friend definitely seems the the tallest one uh, because there's three of them. The one friend definitely feels mm-hmm. like oh this. And maybe they, maybe they, both the other two are supposed to, but it's definitely like that one is like, oh yeah, this is her her, yeah. her lesbian mm-hmm. friends, you know. Yes. At- Basically, yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's their sewing um, circle right there. <laughs> yeah, sewing yeah. circle. Yes, yes, they're yeah. roommates. Roommates. And they were roommates, <laughs> and they are, and they were traveling around oh. the world, having all these adventures and like running with the bulls yeah. in Spain, and you know all uh, you know basically just sort of you know. I assume they come for money and they're just sort of traveling the world and having these high adventures. And, uh, and, uh, and now it's time for the social custom of, well, and now I've got to a certain age and I'm expected mm-hmm. to get married. Yep. I got to mm-hmm. marry this, 
this drip and I got to yeah. conform. And then meanwhile, there is this um, troubadour asshole, artsy, whack mm-hmm. job, prick upstairs. Uh, who the entire time I was like, is that Gary Oldman? What a young Gary no, Oldman. Michael Redgrave, who is um, Vanessa Redgrave's dad. Yeah, <laughs> correct. And uh, it's like, okay, you know, well, this is obviously our meet cute because yeah. they don't like each other. And then they actually hate each other. And then they're going to, yeah, you know, like, he's an asshole. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and eventually she's going to fall for him and we'll figure yeah. out he's not really an asshole. And, and all that happens. But then we finally get in the train. We kind of forget mm-hmm. about the two British guys. And then turns out Mrs. Miss Freud is involved in some kind of subterfuge and just goes missing. And everybody on the train denies this woman oh, yeah. even ever existed. Yep. So basically and, she's being gaslit for a I while. Like the, yeah, yeah, correct. She's being gaslit by all these people in the train and 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 she's got at some point she gets bonked on the head on the head and she has tea with Miss Freud mm-hmm. and she passes out when she wakes up. The 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 the, the the concierge, mm-hmm. the train is basically like, yeah. well, you order tea, but yeah. you only had tea for yourself. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you were sitting You're alone like, and all the mm-hmm. typical mystery stuff. Yeah. Um, I like this movie all the way up until about the third act. And then the third act mm-hmm. kind of loses me a little bit until oh, the, yeah. the shootout. Mm-hmm. Because when the shootout is happening, the one the when uh, she's, <laughs> And our main character is like Gilbert. <laughs> Gilbert! <laughs> That's not supposed to be funny. But it it's really is, funny because it was during that scene where he gets shot. You think so? He gets shot. One of the guys gets shot. He's like, oh, yes. I just like. I well, just, she thinks she's. Yeah, she, she thinks like, he's I just dead. Pocket square for yeah. my wound right here, and it's like that British stuffiness going in. I was laughing during that scene. Oh well, the dude who wave the dude who waves the white flag. <laughs> Um, yes. And gets killed when he has a line. He's like, you idiots. He's like, <laughs> he says something like, um, just because I have the, the common sense not to want to die. All of a sudden I'm being labeled <laughs> as a pacifist or something like that. And it's, it's the line yeah. is funny, but his delivery is funnier. And then it's extra funny when he goes out the door yeah. to wave the white flag, just immediately killed. <laughs> and, <laughs> The the more like actiony sort of like we got to stop the train, mm-hmm. the more thriller aspect yeah. of that that kind of loses me for a little while. But then when it kicks kickbacks into mm-hmm. the shootout, it's pretty good. And then I think the movie suffers mm-hmm. from the thing that a lot of movies from this era suffer with. It's yeah. just a different sensibility from a different era of filmmaking, mm-hmm. which is yes. movies just ended. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't have endings. And it's not the first they time Albert Hitchcock had that. I mean, like, the end. is probably the most extreme example right there. So. So yeah, yes. it just and it's the yeah. same thing with it's yeah, he kind of did that for the rest uh, of his career with um yeah I with Thirty Nine Steps just kind of ends. I was like, well, why? It's the ending, and I think Ford responded. I had that exact feeling. I was like, it, it's over. What's going on here? So, overall, I really like this movie. I'm trying not to spoil of it, spoil it as much as I can because uh, I would like people to see it. But um, I, for me, I give it a nine and a half ten. It's my number four for the week. I, I want to know your thoughts on it though. I gave it, a, I give it an 8.5. It's actually my number five on the list. So it's my, this is when you like the least, huh? but I do love it. It's in my top five Hitchcock. So that's saying a lot that it's my five on the list. Oh so yeah. Hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, the first time I watched it, I watched it on a bootleg DVD that was really badly restored. And even then I was like, oh, this movie's great, even though it looks terrible. It's just, and then when I got the Criterion version, I was like, oh, it's just like, it's like watching a whole different film. And it's just so funny to watch. And one thing I also wanted to bring up with hilarity is that Michael Redgrave was pretty openly bisexual. So I really, so so Albert Hitchcock may have done that wink and a nudge, wink and nod about adding the homoerotic homoerotic comedy with that with michael in the film because yeah it was yeah and his whole family apparently knew that it's just like yeah we know he has a fez with the way with other men it's just it just happens you were just british we don't really talk about it though. right 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 <laughs> yeah, british stuff lit right there like, mm. I don't, there's no there's no movie on this list that's like this is junk there's one i don't there's one i don't like at all and we'll get to it eventually but um yeah Okay. Oh, and, but I will say that, I will say that, hey, for people who don't like a lot of really long films, it's only an hour and 37 minutes. So, yeah. And it it moves pretty quick, too. It's a very, very short film. Uh, A movie that's not short is 1973's the most modern movie on our list, Armacord, which currently has an 88% Rotten Tomatoes. Federico Fellini, who's won more Oscars for his foreign films than any other director, presents his newest, funniest, most wonderful movie, Amarcord. Instantly, one of the ten best movies of the year, Fellini is the director that I admire above all others, says Gene Shalit of the Today Show. Amarcord is hilarious and the most beautiful movie Fellini has ever made, says Newsweek magazine. Amarcord, it means I remember. You'll remember. Amarcord, from New World Pictures, rated R. Armor Corps was directed by Federico Fellini, is written by Federico Fellini and Tonino Guerra. It was released December 18th, 1973 in Italy, made $2.3 million. Um, living is the greatest act of masturbation. <laughs> it truly is. It truly is. My, my one sentence synopsis is Federico Fellini reimagines his boyhood living in Romania, Italy through various vignettes of eccentric characters living in 1930s fascist Italy. Is this the first fart centric entry into the criterion collection? It has to be right. How many farts are in this movie? There are quite a few. And I think it's the one that has the year, the one of the ones urinating on the floor as a joke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I was yeah. yeah. I was like that's super creative. Why does no boy in my high school do that? I'm like, oh, because no one, no, no boy would think about that. But I was like, I wouldn't even be mad because that's just creative. <laughs> it's, a, it's yes, yes. Um, okay, so boy, uh, the juxtaposition mm-hmm. between there's multiple narrators, but there's sort of this main mm-hmm. narrator who's waxing romantic about the great history and culture of Italy yeah. and of this region of Italy, the, the Romini region and, and uh, all of the art and culture and buildings mm-hmm. and history. And then the actual townsfolk who surround him, who are entirely lecherous, vulgar, dim-witted mm-hmm. and corrupt are constantly throwing things at him, booing him, shutting him down. That's almost Monty Python esque. I mean, Basically, that is yes. holy grail esque. He's going, oh, the beauty of the city, and pe- and every time we cut to one of these vignettes, it's people mm-hmm. fucking farting, shitting, cussing, going crazy, screaming, yes. being mentally ill, family dysfunction. But also, um, Benito Mussolini worship is going on, and and, oh, well, and that's also yeah. that's part of the vulgarity mm-hmm. and the absurdity, yeah. though, because it's a giant 
rose giant, giant rose picture, picture diorama or whatever you want to call it yeah that's talking like fucking yes. zardoz <laughs> and all these kids are like fantasizing yeah. about you know this talking mussolini flower mm-hmm. display that's gonna wed them to the, all the women they want to fuck and it's exactly. just uh almost every citizen in this movie is seen as crass mm-hmm. and seen in the most scatological way possible yes. And we have all this common Italian themes mm-hmm. of the sacred versus the profane. We've got the new whores, yes. sex workers who arrive in a town, immediately juxtaposed mm-hmm. between the Madonnas. And we get the transcendent and the carnal. We get the inst- institutional corruption. We get the, to your point, mm-hmm. the Mussolini worship, which breaks out into ecstatic absurdity. Yeah. Um, and then like what you realize when you're watching it is, well, two things. One, if you don't know what you're watching, this is going to be an extremely off because <laughs> it's very <laughs> truly, long. Truly, yes. It's linear in the sense that it goes from spring to spring, but everything that happens in between there is seemingly at random. Mm-hmm. Um, it is. But then, like, everything is so larger than life. Mm-hmm, we realize really. it's like, Oh, well, this is a nostalgia piece yeah. and nostalgia makes small details larger than it life really does, lines. which is why I, Personally, yeah. this is one of my favorite Fellini films, which I'm sure will maybe shock some people, but it's number two after La Dolce Vita. <laughs> In fact, I even helped contributed to its TV trope page when I was an undergrad. And I did. <laughs> I even, let's quote yeah. I have for it. I actually wrote it in myself where it's like, Fellini brought to maturity this conviction that in order to extract profound truth from the reality of the phenomenal world that appears before us, you must reinvent that reality. And that was by Vittorio Boriani, director of the Fellini Foundation. I just love that quote because this is that kind of movie to me. Like the scene where they're seeing that ship and they're seeing seeing that that liner. And I found out during the audio commentary that it looks too real to Fellini. So he said, no, I need it to look more cardboard-like. So they had to recreate it to make it look more fake. Fake so that people would realize that oh, it's, it makes it's, perfect it's sense. nostalgic memory. And there were still people that that apparently go to that have said, I remember that liner. And you're like, that liner never came to Ramini. That was a fiction from, yeah. from the film. And But I yeah. love those um, that um, that truer than reality itself aspect of the film and of course i was kind of a horny teenager myself like tina belcher is kind of my spirit animal sometimes because i was <laughs> which is kind of surprising considering i'm pretty asexual right now but, but i liked but i was just like i don't want to be a part of it personally but i just i'm fine with watching it and i was like yeah i was feeling that especially for older women it's kind of a cliche that gay girls really like older women and we're like yeah we kind of do we kind of we kind of do like Sarah Paulson <laughs> I think is the queen of that with Helen Tyler since they're like decades apart in age and Sarah Paulson even said when somebody said I yeah. love you it's like oh thank you you're way too young for me though <laughs> that's yeah, amazing but, and these vignettes so, I just I loved how he crafts them and I love these yeah this is an exceptionally well-crafted film and I in agreement with you. I have not seen all of Fellini's work, but I've seen a handful of it and of the handful of films, a lot of the most famous ones. I think this is my favorite of his and I yeah. don't know why. It's not like his most, 
highbrow film. No, but it, it's uh, this is arguably it's obviously his most crass movie. But it, mm-hmm. I there's something about it. I think it's the absurdity of it, the comedic sensibility of it, and then it, it's not just crass for the sake of being mm-hmm. crass. It's adolescent because Fellini is remembering his adolescence. Yeah. So rather than make a coming of age movie, and there's another one on this list mm-hmm. where it's like. It's a coming of age movie where it's exploring adolescence from an adult perspective, looking Mm -hmm. backwards. What he's done is he's recast the entire town that he was, that's, you know, vaguely a stand in from where he's from as, as adolescent and puerile as he was at that Mm -hmm. age. Right. Yeah. So everybody's masturbating in cars Mm -hmm. and doing drugs. Everybody's horny. Mm -hmm. Everybody is, everybody's got the sensibility of a hypersexed, teenage weirdo yes including the adult who goes up on the tree and says i want a woman yeah i even sometimes put that in as a meme on my twitter account when i'm feeling lonely i'm just like me right now i want a woman (laughs) and i wonder how many people get that reference Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know. The, well, and then the priest who's like severely preoccupied, but with whether or not the boys in town are masturbating. Yes. And there's a grown man who comes up to confess his sins, and he doesn't even hear the confession. He just gives him the hail marys and yeah. passes him along so he can get to the next boy so he yeah. can talk about masturbation. With him. Yeah, basically, you're like, oh, they. Did. It was kind of an open secret, secret. With oh, hundred percent. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which I think is why this film, and I know that Dolce Vito was were both condemned by the Catholic Church. So Dolce Vita, my dad, it was funny. My dad was in high school when that movie came out. My dad's a boomer. And he and his friends went to this theater in Virginia, Virginia, because they heard, they have this film that was banned in Italy. They might be have some boobies. And he went to an all-boys <laughs> school, like Tito goes to mostly with all boys where he hangs out and he has the uniform. uniform. And they go... And they went there and it's a long movie. And my dad is just like, just like, where are the boobs? I didn't see any nipples except for the final. I almost thought I saw it, <laughs> but he was just like, like very good, but I don't understand why it was banned. It's like, Oh, it's because that scene where the opening scene where Marcello Mastroni is, is journal is being a journal, uh, obscuring his um, journalist integrity by trying to flirt with a sunbathing woman on that roof and he's holding the the statue of jesus just right below him just like call me like what are your numbers and that was what the catholic church was like "Uh, uh, no way no way so in spain and it was spain so so i'm just like it is not hard to have been banned in in fascist spain with with um francisco franco No. no it was not that hard i don't think my dad and his friends realized well, if your dad wanted boobs, he should have waited until the seventies because Armor Court has two of the most <laughs> prodigious, the most prodigious bust. Yes, and one of the most protracted nipple sucking scenes. I almost wonder how the Puritans would handle that scene, and it's even with, and they wouldn't care if the actor that was playing Tito was twenty, was in his early twenties. They wouldn't care. It's like he's a teenager. That's sexual assault. It's just it. it that's your generation. That's your generation, Molly. Oh. That's your generation. <laughs> <laughs> it may not be you, but that's your generation. It's like I don't, I don't consent to watching these giant breasts come out mm-hmm. on screen and have this guy sucking on them. Well, what's great about that is he no, isn't sucking not. on them. She's telling him to, but he's such a loser yeah. of a teenager. He's such, and he's obviously like the closest thing we get to a yeah, stand in. 
He is so inept. He's so horny and yet so sexually inept, which of course is obviously like this great metaphor really for adolescence, is. right? Like you talked about yourself and of course mm-hmm. myself as well. You're at your hormonal, hormonal mm-hmm. horniest, arguably. And you don't know what the fuck you want no, or what the fuck exactly. you do. Exactly. Really. <laughs> you want everything and nothing, <laughs> and you don't know what to do, and you think you know, and and, the, and so he finally gets this this woman, mm-hmm. you know, and she's she pulls her breast out and it's just like if you know, and all he has to do is is suck yes. a nipple and he just he keeps can't blowing, do it, no. keeps raspberry, <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> her chest and she's like suck yeah. suck suck and he's like <laughs> and it's so ludicrous you're like he can't and, it, and there's obviously a metaphor too there of you know men cannot listen to exactly, what satisfies no. a woman it's yeah. great it's just great yes. shit and then she's finally just like puts her boobs away just like here take a yeah, cigarette get the fuck yeah, out of yeah. here yeah. get out and then it's it's solidified with he can't even get yeah. the door open <laughs> Like it's cringe comedy. She has to get her it's own door open. It's comedy right there. <laughs> it's cringe. hundred percent. It's yes. cringe comedy. It's <laughs> cringe comedy. It's also a great sexual metaphor. He can't get her door open. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it is, is this a debaucherous debased? You know, people are pissing, farting, uh, you know, circle jerky and all this. Yes, sort of, it, yes is. it is. But it's all also beautiful, things. like the peacock scene, right? The, but it's beautiful in the fountain <laughs> with the peacock, and you're just like, oh. and, that, and that's the, that's the most famous the scene from the, the film. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. it's incredible. It's the mm-hmm. the peacock in the snow is incredible, and uh, also. I think the the real interesting thing mm-hmm. that he does with the ship, the liner, is you know they stay up all night long to see this grand creation mm-hmm. of the fascist regime. You know, Viva Italia, mm-hmm. long live yes. the regime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it passes by, and they're in the darkness. And then like we like cut away to from it, like we're gonna cut to another scene. And then there's this real quick cut of what seems to be them trapped in the oh, wake yes. of the ship. And and then we smash like smash cut away from it, and I'm thinking, okay, first time I'm like, man, is this an <laughs> editing error because it's not enough for you. And then I wrote about it. And I'm like, it could be an editing error, or it could be yeah. that they've waited all this time to see the glory of the regime, mm-hmm. and it's just sort of passing them by, mm-hmm. not even acknowledging their presence, and then they're just almost Basically, obliterated yes. in the wake of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the darkness, mm-hmm. or left in the darkness, or left at sea, they're mm-hmm. left in the chaos of the waters. They're left in the wake of this. All of this time and money has mm-hmm. been spent to build this cruise liner as this the, for the glorious mm-hmm. regime of Mussolini and fascism and 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 the the love of these people mm-hmm. for fascism. I mean, and we're not. That's even a metaphorical. They're like, yeah, you know, yeah. viva la fascist. Oh, no. yeah, and it's fascism. because then, and, in less than ten years late, less than a decade, we're going to have have it where those same people would be like, no, no, I screamed and cheered when Mussolini and his mistress were on those meat hooks. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. Well, the only person who's sort of anti-fascist is the idiot dad who who gets up in the bell tower and is like, yeah, you know, and he's forced to drink the castor oil yeah. with the regime right there. Where and then he he and then he messes up yeah. his pants because it makes you because it gives you diarrhea. Mm-hmm. It's a really sad yes, scene. yes. Well, yeah, I just like <laughs> yeah. That's the other thing. Yeah, guy shits himself and yeah. then gets a bath, and his <laughs> wife is weeping over him as he's being bathed. Yeah. And his son is disgusted, and it's like, oh my god. And so it's like. 
it's what's really interesting though is it's like obviously mm-hmm. this is an anti-fascist movie but it also has no problem taking down yeah. the anti-fascist so it's it's sort of it's it's Fellini looking back and being like every adult in my life was a fucking idiot yep. and I was a we're fucking all idiot. kind of yeah. kind of idiots yeah. that we're all just trying to exist basically we're all mm-hmm. horny idiots struggling yeah. our way through life where the movie loses me ironically enough is by the time mm-hmm. we get to the marriage of uh, yeah. the beauty parlor owner, the older woman who's lamenting the fact that she's unwed in her yeah. late twenties, early thirties or whatever. Uh, and she ends up marrying yeah. a member of the mm-hmm. regime, a member of the fascist party. And then that's his fantasy woman. And so he just mm-hmm. disappears and all this sort of shit. Disguise, I don't yeah. care about that mm-hmm. wedding. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care about the end. It's odd because it's like, by the time mm-hmm. we get there, I don't give a shit. And I think it's because I care I care less about the characters themselves mm-hmm. and more about the world that he's created. And he's done such an a incredible job of creating such an absurdist world. This is an odd connection to make, but if anybody's familiar with now discredited Garrison yeah. Keillor's oh, yeah. Lake Wobegon mm-hmm. days, the book that he wrote, it's, mm-hmm. The movie feels very much like that. It feels very like it's just a disparate group of characters, mm-hmm. quirky characters in a, in a town. Um, by the time then we get into the specific of really dialing into to, to him and his heartbreak over this woman and her mar- sort of settling for this fascist and all this sort of stuff. I, I just didn't care. So the ending loses me. But mm-hmm. I, I still give it a 9.5 out of 10 mm-hmm. because I, I think it's a masterful filmmaking. It's actually my second of the week. Same as mine. It's my second too. And I actually have the same rating, 9.5 out of 10. Well, that leaves one movie for me I don't like, uh, which is sort of surprising. But it's 1959's Mm -hmm. The 400 Blows, which currently has a Mm -hmm. 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. Striving to depict not the dewy-eyed memory, but rather the painful yearning experience of adolescence, Truffaut opens his film with a driving sequence through the streets of Paris in which the Eiffel Tower seems elusively out of reach, and closes it with an epochal final shot in which Antoine looks directly into the camera as if challenging the audience. In between, he offers an affectingly authentic portrayal of the tribulations of teenage years, creating a set text, the influence of which would reverberate through movies as diverse as George Lucas's 1973 hit American Graffiti and Greta Gerwig's 2017 charmer Lady Bird, of which the director said that she wanted to create a female counterpart to films like The 400 Blows. The 400 Blows was directed by Francois Truffaut. Can you give me the, the French pronunciation? There we go. And it was written by written by himself and also uh, co-written by sorry. Ugh. I'm like, I am an encyclopedia, but sometimes I'm like, it escapes me. <laughs> and Marcel Mousset. <laughs> Marcel Marcel Mousset. Uh, it was released May 4th, 1959. Intentionally released on Star Wars mm-hmm. Day, you think? or <laughs> uh, 30.7. Probably not. Or did Star Wars make sure to have, or did George Lucas make sure to release it on there that day? 
$30.7 million at the box office. Wayward French street urchin drifts away from the uncaring adult world to her life of loneliness and petty crime. My sentence is Francois Truffaut crafts an autobiographical film with his author avatar Antoine Donnell is troubled childhood spurred by his rebellious nature and unwillingness to comply with societal norms. This is the directorial debut of Truffaut as, and obviously he's one of the founding fathers, one Mm -hmm. of the founding people of the French new wave. Uh, which is also obviously yeah. a huge influence on cinema um, and would essentially give, kind of give us the new Hollywood eventually. Yes, yes. Um, mm-hmm. As a matter of filmmaking form, this is exceptionally well-made movie, especially from a debuting filmmaker. And former film critic too. So people are just like, film critics just can't make films. You're like, Truffaut and Jean-Luc Godard were both Very true. film critics. So, hmm <laughs> Every once in a while, I, I like to look and see what the real critics had to say. And so I looked mm-hmm. at what uh, Roger Ebert had to say about this because he wrote yes. multiple pieces about it extensively. The Four Blows is one of the most intensely touching stories ever made about young adolescents. And I'm not sure that sympathy is exactly the intended feeling that Truffaut wants us to feel. But I largely do not care about this young boy at the center of the story. <laughs> Who is a stand-in for himself, right? Yes. This is semi-autobiographical. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, rather than sort of finding himself in the ocean, he found himself in the movie theater. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a delinquent who then eventually sort of latchkey kid, basically, who eventually yes. found cinema, and that's kind of what saved him. Mm-hmm. Um, but because it, it's, it is a technically well-made movie, especially mm-hmm. for a first-time director, I mean, it's yes. masterful, but mm-hmm. because I, I never give a shit about this kid. I never care about him. <laughs> I never care about his life. I don't care about the, the, you know, the French school system and how uncaring and unfeeling it was mm-hmm. towards these children. It never gets me to buy in whatsoever. It leaves the proceedings rather unengaging for me. And the other issue that I have with this movie, and it's not this movie's fault, but is that they've never stopped making this movie. <laughs> Of all the films on our list this week, and for the first five of the Criterion Collection, this is the one that feels the most akin to contemporary filmmaking. Yes. Um, the, the 400 Blows, as much as I can say that, that the Seven Samurai is like the provenience of so much of what we mm-hmm. enjoy about movies, and, and yes, it has been remade multiple times, yes. obviously Magnificent Seven, and Magnificent Seven's been remade a bunch yes. of times. But. And you can see its influence in other films. You can see it in Lady Bird, The Edge of Seventeen. Yes. Yeah, you could see it. Yes. yes. Any coming-of-age movie that's ever been made is a riff on 400 Basically, Blows, yes. it feels Especially like, right? If you were and Boyhood yes. and all this mm-hmm. sort of shit. And, and it's like, I've sat through this yes. so many mm-hmm. fucking times. Yes. Yes. That's the art house. Indie movies are frequently producing melancholy coming of age dramas about sad kids from broken Mm -hmm. lives who are forgotten, shunned by society. Even there's like after sun has sort of, it's a little bit more overt. The fact that, yeah, she's, we kind of get the juxtaposition between her reminiscing on this sort of stuff, but it's Mm -hmm. like, and and I love some of those movies, but, but it's rather than having it, them extracting mm-hmm. elements from the 400 blows and then and then innovate on them which obviously mm-hmm. some movies have this one feels the most directly just copied like the, it feels the mm-hmm. most directly like we're still getting this exact mm-hmm. movie over and over and over again every fucking film festival is filled with 
Truffaut wannabes mm-hmm. and 400 Below wannabes. And I just, I'm tired of it, which is not this film's no. problem. If anything, it might be to yeah. this film's credit. <laughs> But to me, it was to my detriment as a viewer of it. I watched this maybe 10 years ago for the first time. It did nothing mm-hmm. for me then. It did even less for me now. I recognize mm-hmm. it's a good movie, but I can only give it an 8 out of 10. It's my worst of the week. It's good, but it doesn't it doesn't hold up to the rest of these movies. What, tell me I'm wrong. Well, tell me I'm, I'm wrong. also seeing it from the perspective of how Truffaut was growing up, because he was growing up when Paris was under siege during the Nazi period, because it was 1932 he was born. Yeah. So his noncompliance with yeah. authority was very much being noncompliant towards fascism and that ideas, ideas of that, uh, which yeah. since he takes in the present day, I think that's sort of lost, but I think that the remnants of that are still there where it is kind of that idea that non-compliance is actually kind of a good thing that you shouldn't actually follow what all adults tell you to do and the parents are abusive i mean they shame him and humiliate him in public public for being school yeah school they 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 break their promises all the time so he feels he has no one to turn to so he turns to to the um the terrible influences he's and and so, and I can, I felt that for him. I think especially I grew up in the South. I, I'm still in the South. And especially as a queer child growing up, queer teenager, and you feel that, and especially as a woman, you feel that you're forced to comply to other things, to other ways that you don't feel are fair yeah. or justified. And so I could actually understand what I, Antoine was going through and I actually, in, I could see that humanization because mostly those kids like him, they're bullies. They're not actually the protagonists of their films, especially during that time. And this was also yeah. during a time when, where the fifth, where the fifties in America had the um, teens gone wild, teenage delinquent films. Um, yeah. Rebel without a cause. Yes. Back yes, to the yes, jungle. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so. Blackboard jungle. So yeah. we had the. Well, the idea of the teenager yeah. was essentially created then and then immediately after his creation is like yes. well there's these things yes. called teenagers and they're monsters basically, basically <laughs> yes yes these monsters yeah. <laughs> i okay i'm with you i understand its place in history as this is an early portrayal of essentially like like delinquent children are often the product of neglect and the product of a bro- brokenness in society and so they're 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 um and no one treats them like people they're treated correct. like property right which we're seeing now with the book bands correct. because these parents my child will not think any differently than me because they are my child and i will control what they watch what they consume everything they don't see them as as autonomous and so figures. i totally understand that like this movie is the sort of like a sensitive portrayal that's saying maybe these kids maybe kids act out because there's something wrong with society not because there's something wrong with these kids i totally get that i've seen it 50 million times yeah i know because <laughs> it ke- needs to be repeated apparently so and it's a worthy message and it, and it's a well-made movie it's not a bad movie but i for the for these types of movies to work, where it is a very personal portrayal of a person, where whereas to to contrast it with Armacord, which is a very personal story, but the the the, the personal is made 
collectivistically. They that were that that the, the an intimate story is being told through uh, this sort of shaggy dog narrative throughout this whole town, and the town represents his experience. This is very much like this one kid is Truffaut, and this is what it was like to be a youth in France, and you know during fascism, and 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 we have a problem with the education system, and we have a problem with latchkey kids, and 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 we blame the kids, but it's really our. I totally get all that. You got to get me to care about the kid. I don't care about this kid. I can understand. I think it's a. I think it's the fuck um, this kid. <laughs> the catcher in the rye problem. Because yeah, there's so yeah. many people who read the book. He's like, he's whiny. I don't like him. It's like, he doesn't even like himself. That's kind of the point. Yeah. I think that's the point that I don't think you're really supposed to like holding Caulfield that much because he doesn't even like himself. He's filled with self-loathing. And I think Antoine is too. And, yes. and I, but I can sympathize with him. And this was actually one of the first, first, um, this was one of the first films in a, in a, an international film that I ever saw in a theater because they were actually playing this at an indie theater. And I went to it as a teen. I convinced my friend to go see it with me. I was, we were like 18 years old and like 17, 18 years old. And we just came and watched this. This was two or three years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Two or three years ago. Barely. All thanks. Thanks. (laughs) So, so when I was watching it and watching it in the cinema was just a whole different experience than watching it by yourself and you're watching. That could be too. Yeah. Yes. I think that, that also is well. it's the same thing with Lawrence Arabia. I don't think you ever get the full experience of Lawrence Arabia until you see it in 70 millimeter on the biggest screen you can see it in. Yeah. Which yeah. I did. I was very, very lucky for that. And so. So yeah, and it's just it's you're in enraptured in this world, and you have to feel for this kid, but you also feel the frustration of the parents too, because I think there is a humanization of the adults because they are just as clueless as he is, and they have yeah, had yeah. to really live. What's your score? What's your rank for this one? I think it's actually actually about a nine point four, so just right below a mark chord for me. So number okay. four. That's your number four. Okay. All right. It is time for a recap. Coming in dead last for me is the 400 blows, which I give an eight out of 10. Coming number four is the lady vanishes, which I give a nine out of 10. Coming number three is the grand illusion, which I give a 9.25 out of 10. Coming number two is armor core, which I give a 9.5 out of 10. And number one with the samurai sword, 1954's classic film. It's everything you love about movies. Seven Samurai, a 10 out of 10. Perfect film. All right. And for me, coming in at number last, but certainly not least, least Lady Vanishes, which I gave an 8 out of 10. And I believe it was 8 out of 10. Yeah. Still way above average for me. I'm going by the college metric here. So not not the high school one. So it's like 80%. That's like a high B right there. Right there. And then coming in at number four, nine out of 10, La Grande Illusion. And coming in at number three for me, The 400 Blows, Jean-Claude in his first role. And then coming in at number two is Amar Cord at 9.5. And of course, coming in at, at number one, Seven Samurai with a score, 10 out of 10, perfect film, no changes, no cuts. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, Molly, I've been wanting to do this for years. We finally got it done. You've lived up to the hype. You have one of the best curated Twitters that I follow. Uh, get your plug in. What do you do? I know you write reviews. I know you're going yeah. through your fifth degree in graduate school. I actually have already finished that. So hopefully I will. Okay. All right. Yeah. So hopefully I will need another degree. If it's so I'm doing a, I would do a PhD and they would have to pay me to do it. So that will be a while from now if it happens, cause I'm not paying for that. <laughs> I would just, yeah. you got to pay me to get that. <laughs> but yes. Where can we find you? And when X slash Twitter dies, and I may be dead by the time this episode comes out officially. Hopefully not. Um, I'll be when are you going to start your TikTok? <laughs> I do have a TikTok. I don't really post it because I am a person behind the camera. <laughs> I am not really, even though I, I now see. have a new puppy, so I may just put her up on there. I may do that. There just have go. the Mandal with the Mandalorian. I would like to see the baby and just have her unveiled. Just like, <laughs> <"Ooh."> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> do yeah. that meme. But but you can find me on the website formerly known as Twitter at Raspberry Raz. And that's my dad. My dad's nickname is Raz. So that's why I take it from that. Besides also Raz right there. Yep. And you can also find me on Letterboxd at Molly Raspberry. And you can find me also, I have a WordPress site, Mollywood writes at wordpress.com. And sometimes I also contribute to the film stage. So I've got a, uh, he, I've got a catalog of things I've done. I've done a review. I've done interviews and mostly trailer, trailer stuff like that. So yeah. And I'm also on Instagram too. So yeah. Under Molly Raspberry. I loved having you on your incredible guest, incredibly knowledgeable. If you're ever willing to come back on, I'll have you talk about trash. Yes, <laughs> I do love trash too. I did an entire piece on John Waters, female trouble, which is my favorite John Waters film nice maybe i haven't done a john waters Ooh. episode yet you might have just given me an idea all right now we're getting close to the time you have to leave so uh we're going to end it mm -hmm. here uh but we're going to maybe have a little bit of overtime over on patreon.com slash binge movies where i'm going to ask molly one question very quickly and then we'll let her go so until next time binge on mm -hmm.